Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 26, Homer vs. Lisa and Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Steal what we steal. Carve graven images when we carve graven images. And today I'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 13, Homer vs. Lisa and the Eighth Commandment. That first aired on February the 7th, 1991. And I'm going to be talking about Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who was sworn in as the president of Haiti on February 7th, 1991, the very same day that Homer vs. Lisa from the Eighth Commandment was first aired. Haiti has a very varied, bloody, but fascinating history, so stay tuned for that. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. I'm afraid there's been a death in the Simpsons family since last we recorded. Mm -hmm. That's Russie Taylor, the voice of uh, Minnie Mouse, Huey, Dewey and Louie, and, much more relevantly to us, Martin Prince, Sherry and Terry, and Uta. So at least three characters we've met thus far. And as I tweeted uh, a few weeks ago, one of the gems of this run-through we're doing for the podcast has been a rediscovery of Martin's work, as Bart's nemesis in the early days. Although in said tweet, I misspelled gems as gens, <laughs> which was not my finest moment. So R.I.P. Rusi, or Russie, uh, you and your talents will be sorely missed. They will. But Gareth, I hear you ask, what was the UK number one when this uh, episode aired? Well, it's actually still the KLF. Which brings us to number two, brought to you by a guy with a rep for being rude. Yes, in a bit of an inception moment for the podcast, Do the Bartman, as credited to The Simpsons, is finally on our radar. Ooh. It does go to number one next week, but we're getting it a week early because I felt like it. Recorded to cash in on Bartmania, the album The Simpsons Sing the Blues was released on December 4, 1990, by Geffen Records, the same record company that was home to Nirvana, who were just about to become the most talked about band in the world. So this was a good year for Geffen, all things considered. Basically all the tracks were rubbishy cash-in stuff, that were either covers, lazy, or extremely derivative. Except for this one, Deep Deep Trouble, which we'll discuss on a later episode, and Look at All Those Idiots, as sung by Mr Burns, which is great. <laughs> Do the Bartman was written by Brian Lauren, a former member of Fat Larry's band of Zoom fame. Although Matt Groening has contended that it was co-written by Michael Jackson, who will largely skip over at this stage and save all that fun for season three, episode one, Stark Raving Dad, which creeps ever closer to us like some malignant odour. Yes. Supporters of the co-write theory believe either or both of the following things. A. That Jackson requested not to be credited, much like he did in the aforementioned episode. And or B. He couldn't be credited, as he was signed to a rival record label. Mm. Either way, it is widely known that Jackson and Lauren at least shared backing vocal duty, with the usual voice of Bart, Nancy Cartwright, delivering the lead vocal. The track went to number one in the UK, along with Australia, Ireland, New Zealand, and Norway. It was in at number two in Spain, three in the Netherlands and Sweden, four in Belgium, and five in Denmark and Finland. Oh, I've got no taste in Denmark and Finland. <laughs> it was not issued as a single in the US, but did get to number 11 in the Billboard Hot 100 Airplay chart. And the video, which, as we mentioned before, was premiered on Fox after Bart the Daredevil, saw a heavy rotation on MTV. Quick point on the video, it was probably the first thing of The Simpsons that I ever saw. Hmm. 
And it now occurs to me that this single probably boosted their audience in the UK significantly. Because only about eight people had Sky at that stage. <laughs> uh, but the video was shown repeatedly on BBC and ITV. Uh-huh. So back to the episode. The US viewership was a Nielsen of 15.2. That was viewed in approximately 14 million homes and 25th in the weekly rankings. Secondly, it's time slot to The Cosby Show, but not by too much. That show had a Nielsen of 16.8, for the record. The production number was 7F13. Not too much interesting about that at the moment, but, you know, we'll get there. Uh We will get there. And the writer was Steve Papoon. Steve Papoon, that's a good name. Yeah. I mean, I'm enjoying saying it already. Papoon. 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 That's a great word. So he's new, isn't he? Um... And get this, he was a freelancer. Oh. Now, I've not looked too far into it, so I'm probably setting myself up for some angry eels here. <laughs> but I do remember hearing that union rules meant a certain proportion of scripts per season had to be from outside the regular writer's staff. Uh, so you'll generally see two or three unusual names per season pop up. Uh, which chimes with that half-remembered assessment from me there. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, again, if you know differently... I don't really care. Um, but what of Mr. Papoon? <laughs> Papoon. It's, Mr. Papoon. It's too much fun. It's too much fun saying that name, Papoon. It's very close to Mr. Spoon from Button Moon, actually. <clears throat> A little bit. Nice. Uh, I won't sing the song. But anyway, um, I don't have too much of him. I'm not sure if he was a Harvard man or not. Um, but I do know he's a writer and producer who apparently co-created the Wild Thornberries. Oh, Okay. Uh, and he wrote for shows such as, well, The Simpsons, obviously, uh, but just this one episode, um, Dinosaurs and Alf, Ben Baker's <laughs> favourite there. Oh, yeah. Um, the latter of which he was also credited as executive story consultant on. Blimey. Can you imagine being executive story consultant on Alf? That's a, yeah. a life goal right there. Um, he's also got one acting credit on IMDb for playing an audience member in Naked Gun 33 and a third, the final insult. Wow, that's uh, <laughs> that's a hell of a thing to put on your CV. Yeah, who wouldn't want that career? <laughs> um, the chalkboard gag for this episode is, I will not make flatulent noises in class. Okay, yeah. And the, uh, the couch gag, described by some sources as, the family do a little dance. To me, they're clearly walking like Egyptians. Well, yeah, obviously. As popularised by the Bangles, unfortunately casually racist, 1986 hit of a similar name. Mm-hmm. I do quite like that song, though, and I believe we discussed the lyrics before uh, when Princess of... Kashmir appeared. Yes, yes, we did. Yeah. So uh, if you want to listen to that, that's episode 10, The Poltax Riots Night Out. Good stuff. But what happens in this episode? Well, we begin, not in Springfield, but in a flashback further back than we've ever been before. Back to 1220 BC at the base of Mount Sinai, where Homer the Thief, Azran, carver of graven images, and Jack, sorry, I mean Zoar the Adulterer, <laughs> are live on the scene for Moses's announcement of the most immediately relevant three of his recently discovered Ten Commandments. <laughs> One assumes that Moses's next act was to expertly dash the hopes of exactly seven more people. So we've established that stealing is a sin, straight off the bat. And we go back to the normal timeline, where Ned is uncharacteristically threatening to box someone's ears. What crime had said Sneaky Pete committed? The crime of offering Ned an illegal cable hookup for a mere $50 flat fee. Homer, who naturally aspires to cable, has no qualms about the offer. (laughs) even chasing down the van to get his hookup and a copy of a very persuasive pamphlet called So You've Decided to Steal Cable. <laughs> the family are all convinced and they enjoy a smorgasbord of televisual delights, including movies that get two stars or less and are repeated ad nauseum, a bracket that apparently encompasses Die Hard, Wall Street and Jaws, plus the World Series of Cockfighting, Hear Me Raw, the network for women, And I can't believe they invented it with Troy McClure, who you might remember from such films as Cry Yuma and Here Comes the Coast Guard. (laughs) 
This crapperama is only interrupted by church. Well, Lovejoy's really got it in for pizza pie for some reason. A bar finds out how many pirates are in hell from his much put upon Sunday school teacher. <laughs> yes, the topic of today's lesson is hell, and thou shalt not steal rings in Lisa's ears until she's no longer convinced that dishonest cable is the way forward. In fact, she goes full on into anti stealing zealotry, leading to a price check on two measly stinking grapes. But Homer will not easily give up his beloved cable, however spurious his arguments. Not with Watson Tatum 2, the bout to knock the other guy out, coming up. <laughs> and this time, Lenny and Carl won't have to listen to the round-by-round updates on the radio and watch the still photos on the 11 o'clock news. <laughs> Though that's all taking place at Carl's, as Lenny is later revealed to be living in absolute squalor. Mm-hmm. In fact, it seems the whole town is up for watching the fight at the Simpsons' home, which shows there can't have been that much uptake for the $50 cable hookup. Mm. Lisa checks in with Reverend Lovejoy, who is his usual amount of help, i.e. none, but comes away with the idea to boycott the fight as an example to others. Meanwhile, Homer is starting to see some problems with his cable stealing, as firstly the cable guy breaks into the house and offers him a presumably stolen car radio, and then Bart is found charging the neighbourhood kids to watch softcore pornography. Two and two are starting to get put together. But Homer comes up with five and reacts by partially fortifying Cassidy Simpson. Fight night arrives, and the guests offer their tributes, from Mr. Burns's single small packet of Cheetos to Barney's imported generic beer. Lisa is sent outside to protest, but hearing how Drudrick Tatum's crimes kept him incarcerated and separated from his family is the last straw for Homer, who grudgingly grabs the rest of his family and joins the protest, vowing to disconnect the cable that very night. Were this a real heavyweight boxing match, we could have expected it to go three lacklustre rounds before a low-energy TKO. But this fight actually lifts up to the height, with Tatum winning with a last-minute knockout in the final round. Once the guests have left, Homer strikes while the iron is hot and disconnects some cables, though sadly not the one he was aiming for as the town and the audience are plunged into darkness. <laughs> I really enjoyed watching that. Yeah, this yeah, this one's great. This is this is this this is one of the classics. There are so many little blinking you miss from gags. Like there's a sign in the quickie mark that says buy and buy some more or something like that. And they paid real attention to detail with what's going on. I mean, you can often see Jimbo Jones like stuffing his pockets with things in the shops. Yeah, yeah, we noticed that this time around. I, I'd never noticed that before, but there's there's two or three uh, times where he's, he's stealing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the character development is really good because the thing I like about Homer is that he straight away is ruled by greed. And... Again, this is something that I don't think you'd have on that many shows in the early 90s. The opportunity for blatant criminality is there. And Homer goes, yeah, thanks very much. I'll have a bit of that. But at the end, he comes round, you know, because they're trying to make out that Homer, although he's flawed, he is, he is a good guy. And also Lisa, I think... I'm not entirely convinced they've got Lisa right on this one because I think that... She would be she would be moral about it. She would be against stealing because she's a very moral person. But Lisa is scared into it via the threat of hell. And as we know, Lisa is a sceptic. So I don't think that she would be up for that. Certainly not in later series anyway. True. Yeah, it's, it's another time where they've not got the eventual characterization of Lisa screwed down. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I do love Bart in Sunday School, though. Just just <laughs> absolutely loving the fact that it's hell this time. Yeah, yeah. Having, uh, having sat through all of the uh, all the morally good stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and of course, in the states, hell is a mild swear word. That hmm. uh, you know, you had to say heck instead of saying hell. So yeah, for them to revel in that is quite nice as well. So, would you like to hear about some uh, character debuts? Mm-hmm. So we get Drederick Tatum, a hulking, lisping, African-American heavyweight boxer with numerous legal issues, an unscrupulous manager, and even a gold medal winning amateur career, 
as later seen in Season 4, Episode 10, Lisa's First Word. We all know who he's modelled on, of course. Mm-hmm. Balrog from Street Fighter 2. <laughs> he's voiced by Hank Azaria. We'll see a fair bit of Tatum in later episodes, but really only as cameos. He drops in, does something really Mike Tyson-y, and then drops out. He will have a pivotal role as an antagonist in Season 8, Episode 3, The Homer They Fall. This episode also marks the first appearance of Lucius Sweet, Tatum's manager, who is blatantly modelled on Tyson's somewhat colourful manager, Don King. We'll have a much better chance to talk about him, and indeed Tatum, when The Homer They Fall rolls around. And Troy McClure. (laughs) Seen here for the first time, voiced by Phil Hartman, and with a character design apparently modelled on Hartman, and with a name inspired by actors Troy Donahue and Doug McClure. Here he is found presenting an infomercial with Dr. Nick Riviera. (laughs) And it won't be the last time we see him on one of those. For Mr. McClure is on the downturn of his acting career. Torpedoed after certain pernicious rumours about his romantic abnormalities came to light. (laughs) Put it this way, when Fat Tony said that McClure slept with the fishes, he wasn't just being a mafia stereotype for once. (laughs) I've always assumed this was a reference to how rumours of homosexuality always threatened to sink actors in the 50s and 60s. I don't know. I can't really thought about that. We'll repeatedly see McClure in older films and television programmes or more up-to-date work largely in educational materials, telethons and public service films. (laughs) He's used to lampoon a very specific kind of washed-up actors from the 60s and 70s that you just don't seem to get anymore. I wonder if that's related to the internet. Nothing seems to be forgotten these days, and basically everything of a person's career is available, in Mm -hmm. a way it just wasn't back then. Uh, And most celebrities have a social media presence of some sort. The internet has made it easier to find and organise fans of even the most obscure icons these days. Mm-hmm, true. So I'm not sure McClure would even work as a new character now, but back then, absolutely priceless. Hartman's work as him is just brilliant. I don't think there's a single bad appearance of Troy, though the character benefits slightly from the timing of his retirement. Last having a speaking role in Season 10, Episode 3, Bart the Mother. Obviously, the circumstances of said retirement aren't fantastic. New. No. I think this is the third episode in a row where I've mentioned Hartman's passing, in passing. And just to reiterate, it's something I don't relish talking about, so here's the deal. If we actually get to Bart the Mother, (laughs) which assuming we go in order and don't have any more special episodes, and we're going to have more special episodes, we'll be in a mere 180 episodes time. My word. So when that happens, I'll talk about it. Deal? Yeah, fair enough. Deal. (laughs) Now, I thought it would be remiss of me not to mention some highlights from his filmography, but I'm also very aware that I did exactly that for Radio Wolfcastle in the last episode, so I think we'll just tackle them as they come up. There are some doozies in there, though, and Tom, I think you were telling me your favourite recently. President's neck is missing. Absolutely. That's brilliant. So, shall we close on some did you knows? Mm-hmm. Thou shalt not steal isn't always the Eighth Commandment. It depends what version you're reading. So, clearly I didn't know this, uh, which means I need to credit uh, David W. Tamkin and Rob Steele, who put this little factet on the Simpsons Archive capsule for this episode. So, under the traditional counts for Judaism and Protestantism, it is the Eighth Commandment. But Roman Catholicism has it as the Seventh Commandment. But it looks like only Protestants get the Graven Images commandment. So given Azran's presence in the flashback, it's the only logical basis for the system used here. Tamkin also points out that Matt Groening is of Dutch ancestry. So that would tie in nicely. Mm -hmm. Mr. Burns mentioned seeing Gentleman Jim Corbett boxing, which would have to have been in the late 1800s. (laughs) But Gentleman Jim was real, though I can't find any mention of his boxing, and I quote Mr. Burns here, an Eskimo fellow. Mm -hmm. He is said, however, to once have boxed to a 61-round no-contest draw with Peter Black Prince Jackson. So reports of his stamina seem to have been Mm well-founded. And finally, 
The movies from Top Hat Entertainment are called Stardust Memories, <laughs> which is a reference to Woody Allen's 1980 film Stardust Memories. Yet another self-indulgent snorefest starring him and as many objectively attractive women as he could get on board. Absolutely no wish fulfillment there from the objectively unattractive little dweeb. Mm -hmm. Which, on a lighter note, saw the feature film debut of one Sharon Stone. Oh, okay. And Broadcast Nudes. A reference to the 1987 romantic comedy Broadcast News, written by James L. Brooks. And starring... Albert Brooks, the voice of Cowboy Bob, and Hank Scorpio. Nice. So there nice, that's good. Wow. All kinds of inception going on here. <coughs> Tom. Yeah. Good knowledge. Tell me all about Haiti. Okay, right, so... Uh, we need to work out a way to go from one bit to the other, because what I'm talking about has got nothing to do with that Simpsons episode. <laughs> okay, Haiti. So we're in the Caribbean, or Caribbean, if you prefer... Haiti makes up the western half of the island of Hispaniola, with the rest of the island being taken up by the Dominican Republic. To the east of the Dominican Republic is the US territory of Puerto Rico, and to the west of Haiti is Jamaica and Cuba. Incidentally, if you continue west, you get to the Cayman Islands, a place where fat white British men can't divulge information about that customer's secret illegal account. Oh crap. <laughs> you certainly shouldn't have said he can't do that. Yeah, exactly. So before Europeans turned up, Hispaniola was populated by the Taino people. Then, on his way to discovering America in 1492, Christopher Columbus landed there. Columbus had done a deal with the Spanish monarchy, who not only funded his expeditions, but also granted him governorship of any lands he claimed. He gave the island its name, Hispaniola simply translates to Spanish island, and he founded the first European settlement there, La Navidad. The treatment of the Taino by the Europeans was, not surprisingly, appalling. To start with, Columbus brought back various trinkets with him after his first voyage to show off to the Spanish royal family. These trinkets included a few Taino people that he'd kidnapped, just so that he could say, here's what the natives look like. Ugh. He was a total bastard, Columbus, he really was. At least we've got cameras these days. Mm. That, would, that would have sorted the whole thing out. Absolutely. So following this, Spanish colonists showed up and enslaved the local population. Columbus found out that large deposits of gold were to be found inland, and the enslaved people were made to work in gold mines. This, combined with the introduction of European diseases, decimated the local population, which went from about 400,000 people before Columbus showed up to around 20,000 just two years later. In order to supplement and later replace the slave labour from the indigenous population, the Spanish brought in slaves from Africa. They too were forced to work in gold mines and then in sugar and coffee plantations. During the 16th century, Hispaniola became an important base for pirates. Colonists were told to move away from the north and west coasts in order to avoid them and instead settle on the south coast, around the settlement of Santo Domingo. This actually increased piracy on the island as the pirates settled in the towns and villages that the colonists had abandoned. So that worked well. Around halfway through the 17th century, the French moved in. They colonised the western third of Hispaniola and named it Saint-Domingue, basically Santo Domingo, but in French. It was officially ceded to France from Spain in 1697, following the signing of the Treaty of Ryswick, which brought an end to the Nine Years' War between France and a Grand Alliance that included Spain. French colonial rule was marked for its notorious brutality, the economy revolved around sugar, which at the time commanded a very high price in Europe. Hang on a bit. So first you get the sugar, mm. then you get the power, then you get the women. Uh, yeah. Okay. So slaves continued to be imported from Africa to work in the cane fields and the mills. Their conditions were atrocious and deliberately so. While slaves in what was to become the USA might be expected to have families... A slave in Saint-Domingue had a life expectancy of three years. They were worked that hard. Oof. The slaves were brought in from West Africa and brought with them their own languages and culture, including a collection of beliefs known as voodoo. By the late 19th century, the indigenous Taino population was long gone and the population was decided entirely by French colonialism. At the top of society were the Grand Blancs, the rich white men who owned the plantations. 
These guys often didn't even live in Saint-Domingue. They just stayed in France and grew fatter for profits of slavery. Yay, capitalism. Beneath them were the Petit Blanc, white colonialists who would live in the colony and do their dirty work. At the bottom of society were African slaves who outnumbered the white population by 10 to 1. But there was another group, the free people of colour. As slaves were considered property with no rights, rape was common. Over time, this led to the emergence of a whole new class, also known as mulattoes. They were often educated, and some of them were even slave owners themselves. This population makeup was a recipe for disaster. Everyone hated everyone else, and resentment was through the roof. The Blancs, being so heavily outnumbered, lived in fear of slave revolts. Some slaves escaped the plantations and survived on the outskirts of settlements or on the hills, largely living off the land, and they were known as Maroons. Although there were thousands of them, at first they were disorganised. But then, the voodoo priest Francois Macandal emerged as a leader. He led the Maroons in a rebellion that lasted for six years before the French burned him at the stake in 1758. But the seeds of revolution had been sown. Around this time, a man who would come to be known as Toussaint Louverture was growing up in Saint-Domingue, and he's an absolutely fascinating character, so I'll be sticking with him for a while. Details of his early life are sketchy, but we can be pretty sure that he was born into slavery, but educated by his godfather, Pierre Baptiste, who was a free person of colour. In 1776, Louverture was made free himself, and it's believed that he made a small fortune from his own small plantations. Not long after this, the French Revolution occurred. So while we're all familiar with Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette having their heads lopped off and the eventual rise of Napoleon Bonaparte, the revolution had huge implications for France's overseas colonies. On August 26, 1789, the National Assembly published the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which was kind of the French Revolution's equivalent of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In Saint-Domingue, the different classes took it in different ways. The Grand Blancs interpreted it as a call for independence, as they wanted to run the colony without interference from the French government. The free people of colour took it as a call for full legal equality with the Blancs. The slaves hoped it would signal an end to slavery. In October 1790, a wealthy free man of colour named Vincent Auger went to the governor of Saint-Domingue, demanding the right to vote. When this was refused, he led a small insurgency of around 300 freed slaves against the government. He was captured and made an example of. He was executed by being broken on the wheel. Ooh. Any fans of medieval torture will know what that is, and then beheaded. In May 1791, the French Revolutionary Government granted citizenship to all free people of colour. The plantation owners rejected this, leading to isolated fighting. This all escalated on August the 21st in a way that seems almost biblical. A tropical storm enveloped the island. Taking this as a good omen, the voodoo priest Dutty Bookman gave the signal to his Maroon army to begin their revolt. Slaves rose up and killed their masters in great numbers. They took control of the north of the country, with most of the Blancs dug in in fortified camps. Within the first two months of the revolution, 100,000 slaves had joined the revolt and 4,000 Blancs were dead. The slaves destroyed the industry of Saint-Domingue, burning sugar fields and coffee plantations. The Blancs lived in fear of revolution and were well prepared. The next month, they formed militias and killed 15,000 black people. By next year, the rebellion was in control of one-third of the colony. In an attempt to stop it, the new French government sent a new governor, one Ligier Felicité Sanfonax. He was a supporter of the revolution, and his first act as governor was to abolish slavery. The revolution and l'ouverture was overjoyed, the Blancs furious. The other colonial powers in the area, notably Britain and Spain, feared that if slavery was abolished in Saint-Domingue, then their colonies could soon follow. So what were they fearing there? That's right, fearing a domino effect. Mm. France declared war on Britain in 1793 as part of the French Revolutionary Wars. The Blancs in Saint-Domingue sided with the British, hoping that if they took control of the colony, they would re-establish slavery. The British, who at the time were led by Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger, were enticed by the idea, as they were aware of the riches of the colony, and that it could be used as a bargaining chip in peace negotiations. Soon afterwards, the Spanish joined the war, and the army commanded by Toussaint Louverture sided with them. Together, they took over the north of the island. 
However, once the French government decreed that all slaves were free in 1794, L'Ouverture switched sides to the French general Laveau. This made things even more complicated because many of the former slaves in the rebellion were still allied with the Spanish, and the British were still fighting the French. So with me so far? Not really, but uh, carry on. Okay, so there's a lot of complicated fighting. So France signed the Treaty of Basel with Spain in 1795, bringing the fighting between the two countries to a close. Hang on, Basel's in Switzerland, isn't it? It is, yes. Right, okay. Well, that's that's a good enough place to sign a treaty. Uh, Neutral country. Always neutral. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Good point. However, the former slave armies continued to fight each other until L'Ouverture came out on top in 1795, becoming the undisputed leader of those forces. He neutralised the British threat by keeping them pinned down in Saint-Marc and attempted to rebuild the shattered economy. Laveau appointed him lieutenant governor, basically his right-hand man. In 1798, the British agreed to a treaty that would see them leave Port-au-Prince. In November 1799, Napoleon Bonaparte came to power in France. He brought with him a new constitution that declared the colonies would have their own special laws. He also forbade L'Ouverture from invading the Spanish part of Hispaniola. However, L'Ouverture ignored him and took Santo Domingo fairly easily two years later. This made him master of the whole island and in a very strong position. He drew up a constitution for Saint-Domingue, making himself governor-general for life, but falling short of declaring independence. L'Ouverture sent one of his colonels to deliver the constitution to Napoleon, Needless to say, Napoleon reacted badly and sent the colonel to Elba for a time. Kind of ironic, considering where Napoleon ended up. Napoleon sent a force of 20,000 men to remove L'Ouverture and re-establish French control of Saint-Domingue, led by his brother-in-law, Charles-Emmanuel Leclerc. L'Ouverture's plan was quite dramatic. He would burn the coastal towns, retreat to the central mountains, and wait for the French troops to succumb to yellow fever. It didn't quite work out that way, and after initial heavy fighting, Leclerc and L'Ouverture signed a peace treaty that saw L'Ouverture retire to one of his plantations. Soon after L'Ouverture was denounced to the French by Jean-Jacques Dessalines, one of his deputies. L'Ouverture was deported to France and sent to prison, where he died shortly afterwards. In his absence, Dessalines was put in charge. Before the eventual French defeat, they continued to kill thousands of black Haitians, including in rudimentary gas chambers. Oh. Yeah. They would force hundreds of people into ships, and they'd then burn sulphur within the ships, and the sulphur would become sulphur dioxide, and it would gas people. Oh. Sorry, my, largely my uh, sort of interjections here have just been me wincing at yeah, it's, execution methods. It is, it, is, it is gruesome, and it is very, very bloody. So, Dessalines initially ruled Saint-Domingue on behalf of Napoleon, but when Napoleon attempted to reintroduce slavery in 1802, the plantation workers once again revolted. By this time, the French army had been severely weakened by yellow fever, just as L'Ouverture had planned. Interestingly, the French army there consisted of thousands of Poles, who were allied with Napoleon in the hope that he would restore Polish independence. See episode 22, Itching and Scratching of the Polish Government in Exile, for more on that one. In October 1802, Dessalines stopped working with the French and joined the rebellion. From this point on, the fighting became even more vicious. Dessalines and the new commander of the French forces, the Vicomte de Rochambeau, had a reputation for extreme brutality. Rochambeau imported 15,000 attack dogs from Jamaica and had 500 black people hanged. Dessalines retaliated by having 500 white people killed and putting their heads on spikes. Hang on, did you say Rochambeau? Yes, yes. As in, I'll Rochambeau you for it. That is something I was wondering. I didn't know where to start in looking that up, but uh, uh, yeah, that that is how it's pronounced. Yes, definitely. I just remember it as something that Robert Smith says during the the fight against Mecca Barbara Streisand. That's right. uh, A memorable South Park episode. That's right, that's right. Okay. So So from South Park to torture and executions... Oh, fantastic. Well, yeah. it's not that much of a leap to make, I guess. Uh, okay, so so each side are uh, committing torture and execution on like mass scales here. And the conflict basically devolved into a brutal race war. So it was, you know, white people killing black people and vice versa. Meanwhile, things weren't going so well for Napoleon. 
His wars in Europe were going badly, and he needed money and men. To this end, he pulled out most of his troops from Saint-Domingue and sold Louisiana to the USA. Ah, yes, I remember that as a thing. Yes, as in the Louisiana Purchase, masterminded by Thomas Jefferson, Mm. who never did anything important. So anyway, back in Saint-Domingue, a lack of support doomed the army of Rochambeau to defeat. Aided by the British disrupting French shipping, Dessalines' forces won the final battle of Vertier. On the 1st of January 1804, Dessalines declared independence from France and gave the country a new name, Haiti. The new country continued to struggle as the economy was in ruins following over a decade of war. His first act was to order that all remaining white people be killed. And in total, around 200,000 people died in the whole conflict. So, you know, very, very destructive. Dessalines then tried to ape Napoleon and rule Haiti as an emperor, giving himself a regional name Jacques I. His advisers set up an ambush and he was assassinated in 1806. Following this, Haiti broke up. The East broke away and ended up under Spanish control, reverting to the name Santo Domingo, and it would eventually become the Dominican Republic. In the North, Henri Christophe, one of the advisers who had Dessalines killed, made himself King Henry I, becoming King of the North. King of the North! King of the North! King of the North. Anyway. The other advisor... Alexandre Petion ran the south. When Christophe fell ill, he committed suicide by shooting himself with a silver bullet rather than be deposed. Which is a pretty cool way to go, if you ask me. Yeah. Any word on why, in particular, it was a silver bullet? Uh, Did you think he was a werewolf? Yeah, yeah. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Your guess is as good as mine. So, by this time, Petion had also died, and his successor, Jean-Pierre Boyer, then succeeded in uniting Haiti through diplomatic means. Boyer was quickly deposed, and decades of political chaos followed. Haiti became deeply indebted, and in 1915, following the assassination of the dictator Vilbrun Guillaume Sam, the USA occupied the country. The Americans tried to revive the corvée system, where Haitians would work on road building in lieu of paying tax. This, of course, was deeply unpopular and led to the Keko Uprising, which was put down in 1920. In 1930, Stanio Vincent was elected president of Haiti and the Americans began to withdraw, leaving completely in 1934. Vincent went on a power grab, transferring more and more legislative powers to his own office. He tried to stand for office again in 1941, but the Americans stopped supporting him and instead supported Eli Lescott. Lescott didn't last. When he jailed a newspaper editor in 1946, the military staged a coup that removed him. The next ten years saw a familiar cycle. A president would be elected, the military wouldn't like them, and they would be removed. This cycle continued until the election of Francois Duvalier in 1957. Oh, is that Papa Doc? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. So for me, Francois Duvalier is one of the most fascinating villains in modern history. He was a doctor who did some training in the USA. He did American-sponsored fieldwork in Haiti travelling around the country administering antibiotics to treat the bacterial infection known as yours, a disease caused by spirochetes. Okay. This charitable work earned him a following amongst people who thought he had supernatural voodoo powers, and he took on the nickname Papa Doc. Ah! So he gets Papa Doc from, you know, being like a father figure and being a doctor. Right. So that's So that's where that comes from. Papa Doc comes from... A good place, essentially. I'm pretty sure this is going to go to a bad place. It does, very quickly, don't Don't you worry about that. So once elected, he set about exiling supporters of his rival, Louis de Joy. The very next year, a few Haitians and US Marines landed in Haiti to try and overthrow him, but they were all killed by the army. Nevertheless, to consolidate power, he knew that he couldn't trust the army, so he set up his own militia, the feared Tonton Mahouts, who took their name from a voodoo boogeyman. He used this militia to terrorise the people of Haiti and used intimidation tactics to hold on to power. In 1959, Duvalier had a massive heart attack. While recovering, he left the head of the Tonton Mahouts, Clément Barbeau, in charge of the country. When he returned, Duvalier accused Barbeau of conspiring against him, so he ordered his arrest. It was rumoured that Barbeau had used voodoo powers to disguise himself as a black dog, 
So de Valier ordered all black dogs to be put down. That sounds perfectly sane. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Barbo was eventually captured. De Valier ordered him executed and his severed head be put in ice and brought to him so de Valier could use it to talk to his spirit. Obviously, still a trusted advisor. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's some, there's some, there's something of a debate about whether de Valier actually believed in voodoo powers or he was just using it to control people because, you know, people would fear him. It's like, don't mess with him. Your, your head will end up in ice and he'll be talking to the, he'll be talking to your spirit through it. So, yeah. So, de Valier moved to maintain his power. In the presidential election of 1961, he was the sole candidate. He received over a million votes in favour of his presidency, and none against. In 1964, he called for a referendum on whether he should be made president for life, which passed with 99.9% of the vote. It also gave him the right to appoint a successor, so any illusion of democracy was completely thrown out with this. I mean, when you get 100% of the vote anyway, it's not exactly there in the first place, but anyway. Yeah, it's probably the only time where abstaining would actually make a political point. Mm. So, for money, Haiti relied on foreign aid from the USA. Nearby Cuba had fallen to Castro, and de Valier used this as leverage, basically saying to the states, if you don't support my regime, Haiti could well end up with the same fate. It's a form of blackmail, basically. But this worked, and de Valier built up a huge fortune. The election of John F. Kennedy threatened this, as Kennedy was not keen to support de Valier. Of course, Kennedy met his untimely death in Dallas on November 22, 1963, at the hands of Lee Harvey Oswald. De Valier was overjoyed at the news, hosting a champagne party for his cronies. He later claimed that he put a voodoo curse on Kennedy, and the assassination was therefore down to his powers. I, I was literally just about to say, ooh, do you think some voodoo was involved? Yeah, well, 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 that's what he did. He went to the people and went, because of my great powers, you know, this, this president of the USA is dead. You know, which is just another way of saying, you know, don't mess with me. Yeah. Basically. So while in power, de Valier fostered a personality cult based around voodoo, and he modelled himself on Baron Samadhi, a voodoo spirit. However, although he had total control of his country, the same thing could not be said for his health. He died of heart disease in 1971, and his anointed successor and son, Jean-Claude de Valier, took over. Jean-Claude had the nickname Baby Doc, and although he took power when he was only 19, he continued the regime of his father. He also stored up a personal fortune, but he preferred to have a playboy lifestyle and leave everyday governing to his mother Simone. In 1980, he got married in a lavish $3 million ceremony, which caused outrage amongst the impoverished population. Ooh, I can see why. Also, his wife was a mulatto, and the marriage was seen as a betrayal of his father's supposed support for the black population. His wife also kicked his mother out of the country, which only made things worse. The emergence of AIDS and a swine fever epidemic also caused damage to the country. All of the pigs in Haiti were slaughtered, which was deeply resented as many rural people bought pigs as investments. The unrest came to a crescendo in 1983 after the Pope, of all people, paid a visit to Haiti and condemned the regime. This led to an uprising which eventually forced Baby Doc to flee from power in 1986. Now, I think it's important to say that Pope John Paul II did not go to Haiti and tell people to rise up. Yeah, because John Paul II, if you're going to have a Pope, you kind of want him as Pope. He did seem more progressive than a lot of his uh, predecessors. Yeah, but... And a lot of his successors, for that matter. Yeah, but progressive Pope is only going to be so progressive. Yeah. It's Catholic Church, after all. So anyway, with the de Valier legacy at an end, the military took power as a transitional government. They drafted a new constitution and planned elections, but those were cancelled after government troops massacred dozens of people on the 1987 election day. After this, politicians were understandably cautious, and there were a few more years of instability, but a free and fair election was held in 1990, in which the Catholic priest Jean-Bertrand Aristide won with 67% of the vote. He was inaugurated on February 7th, 1991, the very same day that Homer versus Lisa from the Eighth Commandment was first aired. Can you guess what happened next? 
Because there's a theme developing here. That's right, he was ousted in a coup. Ousted in a coup, yep. Mm -hmm. I was about to say that. Well, actually, he faced two. Roger Lafontaine, a former Tonton Mahout, tried to oust him before he was even inaugurated. But the military stopped this coup after mass protests. The military ousted Aristide on September 29th, 1991, and Aristide was arrested... Should I do that? Yep. Aristide... Anyway, he was arrested and sent into exile. The main reason for his arrest was drugs. The military were making a lot of money out of drug dealing, and Aristide wanted to put a stop to that. Funnily enough, the USA knew about it but did not intervene, even though they'd used drugs as an excuse to remove Manuel Noriega from power. See episode 4, There's No Disgrace Like Manuel Noriega for more on that. During his 1991 election campaign, Bill Clinton, as well as wanting to be a baseball and twirl towards freedom, <laughs> vowed to return Aristide to power if elected. The international community persuaded the Haitian military to allow Aristide to return, and with the presence of US troops, he became president once again. However, that was far from the end of the story. Aristide's term ended in 1996, and René Préval, an ally of Aristide, won the subsequent presidential election. So it's very important for democracy, because you've got a democratically elected president passing power to another, democratically, to another democratically elected president. Very rare in the history of Haiti. No coups at that season. Not, not yet. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't laugh. Okay, so after Preval won the presidential election, he and Aristide fell out, and Aristide formed a new party. Now, this party won a third of seats in the 1997 Senate elections, and the numbers created a political deadlock. Aristide and his party won elections in the year 2000, giving Aristide a second term as president. Over this term, Aristide fell out of favour with the states, who accused him of drug trafficking and embezzlement, the very things he stood against at the start of his first term. He was removed from power in yet another coup in 2004. The country was once again plunged into violence, with UN peacekeepers brought in to try and stop it. They managed to hold elections, and René Préval became president again. And in 2010, Haiti was hit by a devastating earthquake that killed hundreds of thousands. Yeah, I remember that very well on the news. Yep. Mm-hmm. At the end of Preval's term, campaigning for the next presidential election started in 2011. In a rather bizarre twist, guess who showed up? Oh, it's Arist... Uh... No, no, no. It, no. Aristide's still there. Oh, right. Um... This, is, this is someone who was kicked out about 30 years before. Oh, it's Digby Bob's mum. No, 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 not his mum. Uh, him. Him, him. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. So, I did not see that coming. Yeah. So, so out of the blue, in 2011, uh, Jean-Claude Baby Doc de Valier rocked up in Haiti. He said that he wanted to help rebuild Haiti and, you know, help the political process. But he was arrested pretty much straight away. And it's believed he'd, he'd returned to claim $4 million that was frozen in a Swiss bank account. He spent the rest of his life just outside Port-au-Prince and died of a heart attack in 2014 at the age of 63. No doubt his playboy lifestyle catching up with him. Mm. So as for Haiti, it's still recovering from centuries of slavery, war, natural disasters and coups, and it remains one of the world's poorest countries. However, the government appears to be stable, with a routinely peaceful transition between Presidents Martelly and Moisa in 2016. But it does have, I hope you'll agree, a fascinating story. I did not see most of that coming. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you that much. As is probably clear from my answers to your questions. Yeah, it, it is a real rabbit hole, Haitian history. And you realise it's, it's, it's linked to the downfall of Napoleon. And, you know, because one thing that really annoys me... Uh, when you're talking about slavery, is how some people go, well, if it was that bad, why didn't they just rise up and kill their masters and whatever? And it's like, well, in Haiti, they did. Yeah. And it was it was a rebellion that lasted 11 years, but it did eventually lead to uh, an independent Haiti <laughs> that was that was run by black, that was what that was run by the black population. So yeah, slave revolts, they did happen, 
and sometimes they were successful. So you uh, you mentioned there the Baron Samidi, who mm. and I think everyone can see where this is going now. <laughs> I only know as a Bond villain. Yes, he's actually a uh, a voodoo spirit. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, Bar- Baron Samidi is a real thing in voodoo. I can't profess to know a huge amount about voodoo. Um, and I haven't seen Live and Let Die for decades, but there's something about drugs there, and they're trying to apprehend the leader of this fictional Caribbean country, which I assume is based on Haiti. Mm. It would seem logical, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can't really, I can't really leave mentions of Haiti without, as frivolous as it seems, mentioning the professional wrestling character Papa Shango. Um, who I saw wrestling at a uh, Wembley Stadium in 1992. Oh, wow. um, Who was basically just uh, Baron Samadhi. Right. um, Played by Charles Wright, who would later go on to be uh, Karma, the supreme fighting machine, uh, (laughs) and The Godfather, a very 70s pimp. Um, So, yeah, that's... Until today's episode, that was, uh, without me knowing... My only real uh, exposure to Haiti and Haitian culture, which is terrible when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you very much, Tom, for that uh, that primer. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, quite something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think with that, we'll uh, we'll close. Yep. Um, don't forget you can find us at retrospectors.org and on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospectors. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out the Retrospecticus playlist on Spotify, which mercifully I can actually add a track to this week. <laughs> uh, if you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. And thank you very much for listening. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bye.